This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. And now, uh, Larry Ornstein is going to get a little head start on next month because we're going to ask him to introduce our speaker of the day, a man whose writing I have read now for how many years, Gene? How many? How long has the jazz letter been coming out? 22 years there. I know an awful lot that I didn't know before. I know a little bit about a lot of things, but I don't know enough about you, and I hope that in the next 45 minutes I'll learn much more. Larry Ornstein to introduce our guest. Thank you, Ray. Thank you. I'm honored and delighted to be here. And if I may, I'd like to quote from a poet whose writing I greatly admire. A story is told in stone and broken arrows and traces of cities unknown, lost in sand. The wind stirs in the trees like voices in dreams. And then, just when it seems we know what it means, suddenly it's gone. The miracle is the mind asking the questions, seeking to find itself if it can, only to see itself endlessly echoed in mirrors, the mystery of man. Ironically, I suspect that the author of those thoughts would never call himself a poet, but he is that, and much more. I refer, of course, to today's honored guest, Gene Lees. That partial quote is from a lyric he wrote to music by Francie Boland. The song is the mystery of man. Gene Lees is one of our few literary lyricists. He hears the words hidden in a phrase of music, and he hears the music of words. Poetic hunger for the mystery of mankind pervades all of his lyrics. Quiet nights for quiet, of quiet stars, desafinado, someone to light up my life with music by Antonio Carlos Jobim. Waltz for Debbie, Turn Out the Stars, music by Bill Evans. Tell Me My Name, and I Love to Make Things Grow, music by Roger Kellaway, who is with us here today. Yesterday I Heard the Rain, music by Armando Manzanero. For Me, Formidable, music by Charles Avnavour. As as Navor. And if you're not familiar with Gene Lee's monthly publication, The Jazz Letter, I urge you to give yourself a present and discover the endless source of provocative thoughts about the business we're in and the music we love, which unfortunately are all too often different things. You'll find insights into the psyches of some of the best known and some of our least known great players. And always you'll be stimulated 
For Gene doesn't pull punches, even though whether he's discussing the reverse racism that has put a strange new spin on jazz, or the lack of value and support that our state and national governments place on all the arts. You might even learn something new about the technical aspects of music, like that wonderful quote that Gene printed under the headline, New Frontiers in Musical Analysis, a quote from Bruce Springsteen. Chuck Berry played a lot of strange keys, like B-flat and E-flat. <laughs> Gene has poured his boundless energy and his perceptive scholarship into the many books he has written, Waiting for Dizzy, Leader of the Band, The Life of Woody Herman, Oscar Peterson, The Will to Swing, Inventing Champagne, The World of Lerner and Lowe, Meet Me at Jim and Andy's, Jazz Musicians in Their World, Cats of Any Color, Singers in the Song, and up next, Gene's biographies of Johnny Mercer and Henry Mancini. In a world where good taste is only a phrase used to sell cigarettes, I'm glad there is Gene Lee's. Thank you. Thank you. ASMAC is honored to present the author, lyricist, poet, journalist, singer, and musicologist, America and Canada's monument to musical literacy and good taste, Gene Lees. Okay, can everybody hear? Well, he had to bring out the point that I'm a Canadian, so I might as well begin with a chauvinist remark. Um, nobody disputes that New Orleans is the cradle of jazz. But if I asked you what city had the greatest influence, and I, by the way, being an ex-Chicagoan, I would make a pretty good claim for Chicago, too. Um, if I were to ask you all what city in the North American continent had the greatest influence on arranging and the profession so many of you practice, you would never say Toronto, but it did have. It's the most influential city on arranging in America. And I'll explain that in due course. Um, I wrote a book, or rather it's a collection of my essays from the Jazz Letter, on arrangers. And let me see, who did I cover? Kenny Wheeler, Percy Faith, Robert Farnan, Gil Evans, Jerry Mulligan, Bill Chalice, Les Brown, Johnny Mandel, Henry Mancini, Billy May, Mel Powell, Marion Evans, and Roger Kellaway. Um, the significance of Toronto so many guys I know here have said that the huge influence of Robert Farnan on their writing. Um, Farnan was born in Toronto. And the big influence on him was Percy Faith, who was also born in Toronto. Um, I was driving the other day and I had a CD of Sinatra in the car. And an arrangement began. And I said, God, whoever that arranger is, he sure loves Farnan. And it got into it, and it was Farnan. <laughs> um, in recent years, we've had the influence of Rob McConnell, who, while not born in Toronto, grew up there and was trained there. And among the avant-garde lately, we've had Kenny Wheeler, who was born in Toronto. And um, to complete the unit, one of the big influences on writing in America was Gil Evans, who was born in Toronto. So if you take Percy Faith and Gil and um, Farnan, um, it's quite a formidable weight 
of influence. Why it should be, I don't know. It's like I've never figured out why so many of the great violinists were Jewish Russians from Bodessa, of all, one city. Um, it's one of the psychological aberrations. Farnan had a particular significance to me because like all Canadians, or like most Canadians, I grew up, it's not as bad now as it used to be, but it was pretty bad when I was young. I grew up with a conviction that no Canadian was ever able to create anything of any importance, certainly not artistically. We did not know all of the uh, power in the Hollywood movie industry that Canadians had from Max Sennett to uh, Louis B. Mayer to the Warner Brothers, all Canadians, um, and not to mention all the actors. But we were never aware of that because they went down to the States and just plain disappeared. Um, the accent didn't make them stand out. Although I once heard Glenn Ford in a movie playing a New York gangster with a slight Canadian accent. I thought, that's a little weird. Um, but Farnan's impact on my life came when I heard some of those albums you've probably all heard, like Two Cigarettes in the Dark. And uh, I heard it in Montreal, fell in love with the writing. I didn't even know, it was so good, I didn't even know what it was. Uh, but I could hear the voice leadings. And I could hear those sudden harmonic shifts, just incredibly clever stuff that I was too stupid to name. I couldn't even tell you what it was, but I could hear it. And then one day I found out that he was a Canadian. And it somewhat revolutionized my thinking. Maybe Canadians really could do something. And um, later on, I was such a fan of Gil Evans, and I found out he was a Canadian. It sort of changed my thinking. But Farnan had a huge impact on me. And it's the curse of Canada that it takes no interest in its own artists. Um, I was so fascinated by Farnan's writing that I, I had to, I was, I was a straight newspaper reporter in those days, and I was sent on some foreign assignments in Europe. And the first thing I did on landing in London was to track down Farnan and introduce myself. And he and I became fast friends. And I have heard of his influence from just about every arranger I know. Uh, Johnny Mandel said that one of the influences on him, on him was everything he could steal from Farnan. Um, <laughs> Roger Kellaway is certainly a Farnan thief and proud of it. Uh, but when I came back to Canada and I was beginning to be aware of the scope of his influence, I tried to sell an article about Bob to um, one of the, the major Canadian magazine. And if they weren't interested, what's a guy who writes arrangements, what's that mean? Um, and those records were going on all over the world. Um, if, do you, any of you know Bob? How many of you know him? See, it's only a small group of ever, over here who've ever even met him. Uh, his influence spread even further in that Marion Evans, when he was teaching people like Tori Zito and Pat Williams, uh, he had two requirements that you go all through the Percy Getchus books, all of them. He said the only guy who ever did it was Tori Zito. Um, and that you go through the Getchus books and you listen to Farnan. And Andre Previn told me once that uh, when John Williams was still playing piano in the studios, he asked Farnan a question, he asked Andre a question about certain string voicings. And Andre gave him, he told me, a copy of a Farnan album and said, go home and listen to this. And he said he got a call around midnight from, um, from Williams saying, what is in bar so-and-so of such and such tune, what is he doing? And um, Andre told him, I don't know, but if you figure it out, call me. <laughs> and um, I asked John Williams about this some years later. I said, I don't want to quote you without checking it. <clears throat> he said, I don't remember whether I said it, but I'm proud to be even mentioned in the same breath with Robert Farnan. 
Now, if you don't know what kind of guy Farnan is, um, I got a call from him about two weeks ago. He's now 86. Um, he called me and he said, I need a favor. And I said, um, what's the favor? He said, you know Andre Previn? And I, I said, yeah. And he said, are you on good terms? And I said, yeah, very good terms. And he said, I've just finished writing my third symphony, and I'd like him to conduct the premiere. I says, well, call him. He says, but I don't really know him. I said, he said, I said, have you ever met him? He said, well, once, but it was only brief. And I said, that's ridiculous, Bob. Why don't you just call him? He says, well, I wish you'd make the contact. So I got a hold of Andre about two weeks ago and gave him Bob's phone number, and he called Bob within five minutes. So whether he's going to conduct a premiere or not, I don't know. But that's the kind of guy Farnan is. He claims nothing. Um, Bob was, from his early days when he conducted, Glenn Miller had the American Army Band. George Melacrino had the British Army Band. They all formed, by the way, on the orders of Eisenhower. There were three major bands. Or actually, there were four because um, um, Sam Donahue had a band over there. He took over the Artie Shaw Band. But in England, there were three bands created on the orders of Eisenhower, the Canadian band under Farnan, the Glenn Miller band under um, Glenn Miller, obviously, um, and um, George Malacrino had the British band. Bob told me that one, all his guys wanted to go over and sit in with Sam Donahue. Um, they said it was that good a band, and I heard a record by that band recently, and it was amazing. But Bob, Bob and I had a, a guy who's now gone named Maury Kessler. We had a mutual friend. And Maury and he had known each other in Toronto since they were teenagers. And during the war, Bob was captain with the Canadian Army Band, and Maury was on a Canadian Navy ship just taking troops over all the time. And uh, he would visit Bob in London. And Bob was broadcasting for the BBC. And Maury said the greatest example of cool he ever saw in his life was Bob was sitting there at the table writing an arrangement. Um, some of his guys were already re rehearsing the band, and somebody came up in a great flap and said, Bob, your wife just got into town, and your girlfriend, so-and-so, has also arrived. And he says, Bob didn't even look up from the paper. He says, put my wife in such and such a hotel, put her in the other hotel, and send them both flowers. <laughs> and he went right on writing. Bob has... Well, he's on about his, his fifth marriage right now. But Bob had a mastery of what I came to know in time as voice leading. And also, he would insert into the arrangements um, so, un, sudden unexpected chord modulations that um, would just catch your ear. And if you um, know those albums, like Two Cigarettes in the Dark, those albums were done... Some of that stuff was originally written in the mid-40s for the Canadian Army Band, and he slightly rescored it after the war. All of that stuff dates from that far back, and it still sounds as if it were written yesterday. But um, the fact of the matter is that no Canadian magazine of any substance has ever carried an article on Bob Farnan, and I've offered several times to write them. And the other aspect of it is that... Um, the publication I have, The Jazz Letter, which Larry mentioned to you, I started in 1981. And the reason I started it was over another composer who happened to be one of my dearest, dearest friends in the world, Hugo Friedhofer. And uh, when Hugo died, 
Dave Raxon called me and he said, Gene, um, Hugo's gone. We'd kind of known it was coming. And I had my slight emotional reaction. I said, what do you want me to do? He says, will you handle the press? And I said, certainly. So I wrote some press releases because a lot of guys, a lot of film composers considered um, that Hugo was the dean of them all. Um, he started in 1928, I think, with Sunny Side Up. And you listen to scores like One-Eyed Jacks and, uh, and certainly the best years of our life, for which he got his one Academy Award. One year he didn't get an Academy Award because he had five scores nominated simultaneously and they were competing with each other. Uh, but a lot of composers think he was the dean of them all. And so I wrote some press releases and I actually called the New York Times and I called John S. Wilson, their jazz critic, who was a friend of mine, and I said, who do I talk to at the Times? And he gave me the guy's name in the music department. And I called and the guy would never heard of Hugo. And um, they didn't, the New York Times, this passing of someone I consider an American giant, didn't get one line in the New York Times. Um, and I got about two lines in Variety. And I got really angry about it. And I said, we have to start our own publication. So I started one. And the thing I thought about is I don't want to be answerable to any editors. Um, I was having lunch with a friend of mine named Fred Hall, who was a broadcaster who's now gone. And Fred said, call it the jazz letter one word. And then I was talking to my buddy Roger Kellaway a couple of days later. He said, put your name on it. If you don't, it won't, nobody will buy it. And so I started, sent out a flyer to a lot of musicians I knew. Um, and uh, they instantly subscribed. Phil Woods was, I think, the first one. And over the years since then, I, I said, what the hell have you got on your hands here? And being able to edit your own stuff um, is a terrible responsibility. And uh, I happen to think that the whole 20th century of serialism and post-serialism is nonsense. It's musical nonsense to me. It may be logical sense, but it is not emotional sense. And most people don't respond to it and don't like it. Um, and I wrote a very funny, sardonic, slightly nasty piece about, essentially about serialism. And I showed it to another one of my friends, Alan Ferguson, who's sitting down here. And um, Ferguson, no great admirer of serialism. But nonetheless, he said, um, you better be careful with that piece because you've got some technical errors in it and somebody's going to pick you up on it. And so I looked it over and it was already in print, ready to go. And I looked at this thing with two viewpoints. One is the guy who wrote it and the other is the editor of the publication. And the editor in me spoke to the writer in me and said, not in my publication, fellow, and I threw it out. And um, that doesn't mean I've changed my mind. It means I've bothered to learn more about what I was talking about. But it was out of this experience that I began to, what was my mandate? I wasn't sure. And I suddenly realized that all of the publications that we have on jazz, like Downbeat, of which I was editor and which I really despised, um, so did every editor who ever worked there. Um, um, Dan Morgenstern, Dan Mor Morgenstern and I and some of the others of us have memory blank about the period there. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether it's just because I hated the magazine so much or because I was smoking so much pot to try to get it out. But, um, and I certainly don't like jazz times. And uh, I realized that this enormous amount of important music happens in this country. And if it's, if it's by Miles Davis, 
you'll get a, an in-depth article on Miles Davis, and in-depth is one of my very unfavorite words. Um, and all of these people, if they're stars, Stan Getz, name it, they can get articles in, in, in magazines. But if it's someone lesser in the scale, like say a, a pianist of the stature of a very wonderful pianist, Junior Mance, it gets ignored. These people get ignored. And I began to realize that time was moving by very fast. And a lot of these people, if somebody didn't get it on paper, they weren't going to be remembered and neither was their information. And um, I knew that nobody's ever going to write a full biography, for example, on somebody I did last year, Milt Bernhardt. But Milt's memories of the business and, and both the good and the bad was, was simply astounding. And of course, those of you who knew him know he was a very funny guy. And I did a piece on Milt. I did several interviews with him. When I wrote the piece, the jazz letter contains 8,000 words. When I finished the piece on Milt, it was nearly 26,000 words, which is equivalent of a small book. If you don't know book lengths of Mice and Men, is 35,000. Um, and I said, my God, this is too long to run. The editor in me said, it's too long to run it. And I said, nuts, I'm going to do it. So I ran it in three parts. And I've rarely had such a claim for a piece as I did over that, because Milt's memories were wonderfully accurate, um, often sardonic. Um, I mean, he talked about in there about the mafia involvement with James Caesar Petrillo and with um, um, what eventually became MCA. Um, and it, stuff that's never been said. And he was there in Chicago when it all happened. So I began to get this stuff down in what I think of as mini biographies, because I knew none of these people was ever going to get a biography written. Uh, no publisher would buy it. So all of these things, as I looked over what I had done, they began to break down into categories of my own interests, such as singers. And since I've written a lot for singers, and I've written for a lot of the best of them, um, and since I sing somewhat myself, um, I was able to bring to that subject insights that nobody else had. Uh, it's one thing to, for, for somebody like um, Will Friedwald, or as one of my friends in New York calls him, the odious Will Friedwald. Uh, his, his pontifications about Sinatra uh, are ridiculous. And Pete Hamill wrote a book on Sinatra, and somebody said he should be paying you royalties, he quotes you so often. But what Sinatra was doing has been something I've studied since I was 15. And uh, Marion Evans said once, in, a couple of years ago in Connecticut, Marion said, relative to this, this has to be very carefully followed, and if you're not a musician, you won't get it at all. Relative to the surrounding musical circumstances, Frank Sinatra had the best intonation of any singer I ever heard. And I came back and I mentioned this to my friend Alan Ferguson, he said, I agree with him. I mentioned it two weeks ago to Johnny Mandel, and he said, I agree with him. Because as you know, what Sinatra was singing to is the untempered scale. Um, and his ear was absolutely uncanny. So I read stuff about Sinatra, and it really turns me off. Um, it's what a star he was. They don't even know what a star he was. And what is more, I said to Alan Ferguson one day, I said, in my opinion, the most underrated singer in the country is Frank Sinatra, since he was such a giant star. What do you mean he's underrated? Ferg said, I agree with you. Because most people don't perceive just what a genius this guy was at his craft. So I have written about the things that primarily interested me. And I found an enormous number of these pieces were about arrangers. 
So I said, that ought to make a book. And uh, I tried to sell it to Oxford University Press, which had published several of my books. And uh, the editor, who's a damn fine editor and a good friend of mine, he says, but you're right, nobody's ever heard of most of these people. And he wouldn't take the book. And I, an English publisher took it, and within a month it was at the top of the music books on the Barnes & Noble list. Because the duty of the writer, of the journalist generally, is not just to tell the public what it already is interested in, but to tell them what it should be interested in. And I guess in writing about these people, I was um, bending their ear. Um, this is something you should listen to. This is something you should know about. Uh, I've got to tell you a couple of marvelous Marianne Evans stories, because uh, do, do a lot of you know Marianne has a slow southern drawl. I wish I could imitate, but I can't. And uh, he's terribly sarcastic and dryly sarcastic. And once in New York, he got a call from Marty Ehrlichman, who's Streisand's manager. And he says to him, um, Marion, how would you like to write an album for Barbara? Well, you don't have to know who the other, the rest of the name. Barbara's it. And Marion said in his slow southern way, oh, I'd like that just fine, Marty. And he says, well, here's the situation. We're going to record on Monday, and she's got Thursday afternoon free, and she can set keys with you. And uh, Marion says, well, that presents a bit of a problem, Marty. The machine I write all my music on is broke, and I have to write all them notes by hand. <laughs> so that album, so that album, that album didn't happen. Oh, in fact, he commissioned a whole bunch of guys to write overnight charts on it, and the album came was done, and it was apparently terrible and got scrapped. But Marion has this dryness. Uh, when I was visiting him there, oh, about two years ago in Connecticut. And he had written, he'd written the charts for an album by one of those rich guys who thinks he can sing and can afford to pay for the charts and the recording. It was a big band, and the charts were good. And I'm sitting there listening to the charts, no voice on them. I'm sitting there listening to the charts, and uh, Marion says, you know all these tunes, sing them. So I tried to sing a couple of them. I said, I don't know where this guy sets his keys. And Marion says, neither does he. <laughs> And so one two, and I don't know what it was, some standard, and it goes up to a bad, high, rough high note, difficult one. And Marion said at the end of it, I said, uh, I said, I took the top of my register comfortably as B flat, and I can imagine under certain conditions get away with a D flat. But Marion says, the top of that thing is an F. I said, you mean I sang an F? He says, well, almost. <laughs> and uh, um, he has this wonderfully dry quality and in my book I recounted just sometimes I won't tell a story about somebody if they're still alive but he talked about how Dick Hames didn't like to play, pay for charts and after a record date he tried to grab all the parts and leave with them and so <laughs> for the road <laughs> so Marion says they were in there listening to the playbacks and in, in the booth and he sees Dick hustling around up there gathering up all the parts and they finish the date and they get out on the um, sidewalk and uh, Marion says to him, Dick, I saw you gathering up all the parts. And uh, he says, now, I don't mind, but my copyist does. A guy named Green, I can't remember his first name. He says, my copyist does. Um, and I have, uh, I wish I could do Marion's Southern accent, but I have to tell you, Dick, he says, those charts are all written in 24-hour ink. <laughs> 
And Haymes says, what, what, do you, what do you mean? He says, uh, he says, well, you're going to Vegas tonight. And he says, you start rehearsing tomorrow, and those things are going to disappear right before your eyes. <laughs> so Haymes goes into panic. He says, is there anything we can do about it? He says, yeah, well, my copyist has gone to this chemist, and he's got a spray. If you put it on the paper soon enough, the notes won't disappear. <laughs> And Hames said, come up to my apartment and, you, and I'll give you a check. Well, Mary says, well, I don't care, but my copyist does. <laughs> and he says, uh, he says, well, why don't you get some, he says, where am I going to get cash? And Mary says, I don't know, but those notes are going to disappear. <laughs> so he says he went back to his copyist place and they sat around and watched for television. Mary and Dick said he'd get it. And um, they sat around and watched television for a couple of hours and... Um, then Dick Hames calls them, and he says, well, we got it fixed, Dick. We sprayed the music. And Dick says, meet me at the corner by my apartment, and I'll give you the money. So they got it in a paper bag. <laughs> but the idea of 24-hour ink appeals me to me immensely. But um, I can't help thinking about my days in New York when I was first writing songs. That city, compared with the business today, that city was loaded with outstanding arrangers. There were guys around working like uh, Marty Manning and um, Peter Matz. And um, you want to know the level of the musicianship in New York at that time? Well, probably still is if anybody can get any work. One of my songs, which will be in Quiet Nights, was to be recorded by Marilyn May. And I went with Peter Matz to the date. And that song was the last one on the schedule. And I was afraid it was going to get left out. And it got down to be, I think the date ran until 10 o'clock. And it got to be right down to the end, and it was getting to be 5, 15 to 10, 10 to 10. I said, I'm going to lose this record. And uh, uh, the producer on it said to Marilyn, do you think you can do it? She said, well, I can try. And she can read like a shark. Um, and she's got this incredible intonation and control. And uh, he said, let's give it a try. So Peter ran the tune down once with the orchestra. She sat and listened, of course. And it got to be 5 to 10. And Peter gave a downbeat. The orchestra came in, she came in, and the whole thing was done in one take. And I loved to play that track for people. That was the level of competency of musicianship in the studios in those days. But there were so many people working in New York as arrangers. Klaus Ogerman, another dear friend of mine, um, and Klaus wrote that first Jobim album in a taxi. Of course, that's not new. Billy May wrote uh, Cherokee in a taxi. Um, they were all working there, and all of these guys were working out here on the coast, like Ralph Carmichael. Uh, Alan Ferguson said to me two or three weeks ago, he says, if a hundred years from now they're paying any attention to this music, they're going to find that the great genius of them all, was, of all of us, was Billy May. Or was Billy May. And I mentioned that to Mandel, he said, him and Billy Byers. And um, the Billy Byers stories are a legend, of course, when he would arrive at a, at a hustle-up job with his briefcase, open it up and put his little lamps beside it and write on dash on in ink. And uh, I mentioned that to Mandel one day, and he, they had a business together in New York. What were you writing? Was it the, the Sid Caesar show, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. They were working together, and, and Johnny used to write on dash on with ink, and they went out for a while, and he came back, and his cat had knocked over a bottle of ink remover, and the whole chart was gone. So he said, since then, he writes with pencil. But um, I have 
over my lifetime, I think what started it in my life is that my uncle was an arranger. And I used to see him sitting there at an old oaken upright piano with a board in front of him writing what I later learned were arrangements. I think he's the first guy who ever showed me the difference between a major and a minor chord. And uh, of course, legendary, he was a terrible ladies man, a trombone player, never married, always very dapper dressed. And uh, he'd get on the phone with his girlfriends or would-be girlfriends with a cigarette dangling out of one corner of his mouth until my mother said the mouthpiece melted. And he once even picked up the telephone operator. <laughs> and uh, he would sit there doing his number, but I used to remember always at that paper um, with a cigarette out of the corner of his mouth. And um, I knew what an arrangement was from the time I was very small. And um, they tell me in the family, my mother told me, I don't know whether this is family lore or not, but they said that by the time I was three, when you'd hear an orchestra on the, on the radio, I could identify every instrument in it. And, uh, but I think there was possibly the influence of my uncle that made me aware, like in movies, people think that these actors are making the lines up as they go along. That's why they write fan letters to doctors on doctor shows asking for medical advice. They just uh, don't get the difference. And uh, whereas I loved all the soloists, people like Zoot Sims with Woody, I always was aware of Ralph, Ralph Burns and Neil Hefty and, all the guys who wrote for that band. And as, as I was also aware of uh, my friend who's not here today, Frank Comstock, writing for Les Brown. So I always looked at the credits on this, and of course I avidly read Downbeat. So I always knew who the arrangers were. And um, one day when I was maybe 18 or 19, I went to hear one of the bands. And I was standing as one did in those days, not dancing. I didn't care about dancing. I cared about the music. And I was standing there near the bandstand, and I recognized that standing next to me was that band's arranger, whom I'd seen his picture in Downbeat, and I certainly loved his writing. And I could timidly struck up a conversation with him. And when you're at that fragile adolescent age, you can be very easily discouraged, and by a discouraging word, uh, if somebody fluffs you off, that'll stick. And I chatted with him, he was quite nice to me, and he says, well, this isn't a good place to talk, why don't we go up in the balcony? So I heard the whole show that night, talking to him, and talking about the arranger, talking about his own writing, talking about what he'd written for the band, and this, that, and the other, and uh, thoroughly enjoying the evening. I never forgot the incident. And a few years ago, Henry Mancini had a party, and I was at the party, and Hank's, one of Hank's best friends was Pete Rugolo. And I was talking to Pete, and I told him this little story. And I said, have you any idea who the arranger was, Pete? And he said, no. I said, it was you. And he was quite touched. And um, so he was, of course, Pete's always been a marvelous cat, as you probably know, sweet man. But those guys, I could always hear simultaneous lines. And so whereas I loved the soloists, what I really loved was what was going on behind them. And I think it affected my whole life, and it certainly affected my writing. And um, so I'm here in great admiration of all you folks. End of talk. Thank you. Yeah. Questions. Sure. Why not? Yeah. Um, one of the most impossible tunes I ever put a lyric on. Um, uh, Creed Taylor brought me that tune. He was recording Milton Nascimento, and he wanted an English lyric. So I was talking to some of the some of my Brazilian friends, and the, the, the original title is Travessia. And I said, what does it mean? I, obviously, if you look at the word root, you know it means crossing something. And um, 
I said, what does it mean? It says crossing. I said, crossing what? And um, it said anything, a bridge, a street, anything. So I wrote bridges. I have crossed a thousand bridges in my search for something real. There were great suspension bridges. There were spider webs of steel. There were tiny wooden trestles. There were bridges made of stone. I have always been a stranger and I've always been alone. And that's how that got written. But you know, when you write anything with, for, with a Brazilian, they have the world's most crooked music publishing. Uh, Mancini said the Japanese have, but um, I found Brazil pretty bad. And that song disappeared down the black hole of Brazilian publishing, and I never got a bloody nickel out of it. Um, oh, I've got to tell you another Marion Evans story. Um, and so, not a, about a year ago, Roger Kellaway took that lyric and put new music on it, and I think it's better than the original. The Marion Evans story that I forgot to tell you was that he came into Jim and Andy's bar in New York one day. Marion was always bugged at the engineers at Columbia Records. And he came in one day and he'd just done an album with Stephen Eadie. And he took the tapes home to listen to them and he comes back and he takes them into the head engineer at Columbia. And he says, now you know how Columbia hires their engineers, don't you? And I said, no, he said, well, I put out a seniority thing. And if it's the janitor's been here long enough, that's the guy who gets the job. <laughs> and so he said he brought this tape in and played it for the head engineer at Columbia. And he says, now how many men do you hear on this? And Marion said, you could, see, you could see the wheels turning in his head. He knew it was more than 10 and less than 100. And um, the guy said, I hear about 18. And Marion says, that's what I hear, too. And I used 35 men on that date. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he said to the guy, he says, this is back in 1960s money. He says, now I have a certain interest in finance. And if you know Marion, you know he does. His father was a banker. And uh, he said, I have a certain interest in finance. And he says, I have estimated that Columbia's losing $3 million a year of musicians who never get heard. <laughs> but that's the story of Travesia. I, I, I wrote an album. I was asked to write an album in 1984 by a guy named Gigi Compi, uh, who is a producer in Milan, Italy, who grew up in Germany. And if anybody ever combined the strangest qualities of both people, German and Italian, he did. Um, and he came over here with Thad Jones. And I was, Thad was a friend, and I was at a party with him in LA, and he found out I'd written a book on rhyming and the techniques of rhyming. And he said, you're the guy who will work on a project with me. And I said, what is it? And he told me, there had been an album done in Italy based on poems of the Pope, the present Pope. And uh, the idea chilled me right away. Uh, not because of the religious aspect of the thing, but because of the technical difficulties attached to it. And uh, he got me a copy of the album. And uh, I listened to it, and it's... Now follow this real carefully, because you're going to go through some curves. It's based on the poems published in Italy, translations of the poems written in Polish, and set to music by two Italian composers. And the stuff is free verse to start, so it's got no metric patterns to it. And uh, I listened to it real carefully, and I, I didn't want to do the project. And uh, I kept upping the conditions. I, got, I named a price, and then when he accepted it, I raised it again. And uh, I said I'd have to be t taken to Milan to get away from my regular work, and uh, I would then I would have to have permission to alter both the words and the music to see if I could make them fit together in English. 
and lo and behold, the Vatican gave permission. So I found myself in Italy working in this extremely weird... Oh, before I went, I thought, I've read the stuff in Spanish, I've read it in English, and I've read it in French, but I want to know what it means in Polish. So I said to Lalo Schifrin, who do we know who speaks Polish? He says, Bronislaw Kaper, he is Polish. So I went to Brani, and I said, asked him if he'd do me a favor, could we sit down and look at these poems for an afternoon? So we did, and he gave it to me verbatim, what they said, without any poetic adjustment, just raw. So I did know what the things were actually saying. And so um, we did that for about four hours that afternoon. And when it was over and I was getting ready to go home, Bronnie said to me, this has been a very spiritual experience. I think I'll run for Pope myself. <laughs> and I says, Bronnie, don't you know a Jew can't be Pope? Which, by the way, is incorrect. There once was one. But uh, then I took all that stuff. And it's the only time in my life I ever wrote a lyric on, on musical note paper because I had to adjust the values of the notes to fit the lyrics I was writing. It was a strange project. And uh, we... we um, Recorded it with a very big orchestra in um, in Europe, in um, Dusseldorf, and then later Sarah Vaughan did it. I said, we have to have a Sarah Vaughan. We have to have somebody who can read. And uh, because as, as Hugo Friedhofer said, looking it over, this isn't exactly three chor choruses of Dinah. <laughs> and um, and uh, Sarah did it. And then later she wanted to overdub it. She didn't like some of what she, I'd just flown home. And she, was, they, she wanted to go back into the studio and fix some of it, so I had to fly back. It's the only time I ever crossed the Atlantic four times in one week. Uh, she was terrified, and I had to stand in the studio and hold her hand while she did the overdubs. And that is how I got to hear Sarah Vaughan with no orchestra, no rhythm section, nothing but raw voice. And you have no idea what an instrument that thing was. And uh, it was kind of miraculous. Um, and when I got home, I wanted to play it for a couple of friends, and I called Paul Weston and Gene Kelly. So we had a little party at Paul's house, and um, the first thing Gene says when he walked in a room, he said, um, did you meet the Pope, Gene? I says, no, Gene, and everywhere I went in Europe with Sarah, we got asked the same question. He says, cut the shit, please, did you meet the Pope? And the answer, the answer was no. She later did, by the way, she was presented to him. But it was... Um, I think her finest performance uh, of her life, and it sold nothing, needless to say, and um, it was kind of, a, I think, a disappointment to her, and I'm told by one of, our, one of her friends that she had that record on her stereo in her bedroom, and my copy of, the copy of my book, Singers in the Song, in which I told the whole story, on her bed table when she died. So it was quite a project. And if anybody wants to buy a hell of a lot of overlooked albums, I got them. I missed the title on your book about arranging. It's called Arranging. So I didn't give it. I forgot. It's, ca it's called, that's why you missed it. It's called Arranging the Score. And um, as I told you, one publisher said nobody would be interested. It went to the top of the Barnes & Noble music books list. So I'm proud of it. I think it's one of my best books because I really cared about the subject. I, I've always had an affinity for singers. Oh, by the way, talking about somebody when, when Larry very kindly said I was a poet, just, I think the last line, yeah, the last line on my Mercer book is as follows. Um, 
I was in Savannah at Johnny's niece's house and a cousin at Johnny's named Bunker and Bunker Hill was named after that family. His friend, this fellow Bunker came over and he said, and this is, I feel, see, technically the lyric form is far more difficult than any poetry you could ever write. Um, there was a, a French songwriter who, and, and composer and novelist named Boris Vion, who's dead now, and he once said on an interview, he was more proud of his lyrics than he was of his novels. And I have written fiction, I have written tons of nonfiction, I've written lyrics and I've written poetry. Poetry gives you the, well, free verse poetry is something a child, it's like finger painting, anybody can do it. I just sit down, I felt as I looked at the sunset and go on and on and on and on, anything that pops into your head. But metric poetry of the old style, say the early 19th century, takes real discipline. Um, I don't particularly care for it, but it takes discipline. And uh, the lyric puts you into a very, very funny position as a writer. You have to match the music, and what is more, if you do it really well, you have to match the inflections of the tones with natural speech inflections. And furthermore, on long notes, you need long vowels. And it gets very, very, very technical. You don't think about it, for God's sake. If you think about the technical in any art, you can't do it. But it really does involve very intense technical <coughs> dimensions. And I've pointed out many, many times about Mercer, that is one of his songs. Everybody knows that the most singable syllables in the English language are ooh and o. Oh. And after that, you can't have everything ending in those syllables or even in vowels, period. But after that, and ending notes on words, you have what are called the liquid consonants, M, N, L, and R. And technically, F and S both are in that category, but they sound weird. And uh, you can sing dream and hold it. You can't sing cut and hold that T. It can't be done. Um, and I like to point out one of Mercer's lyrics I love to take apart in front of an audience and show you how what it's made of, the M, N, L, and R. And the lyric, it goes, and listen to the oohs and o's and l's. I remember you, you're the one who made my dreams come true a few kisses ago. I remember you, you're the one who said I love you too. I do. Didn't you know? I remember too, a star that fell like rain, and stars that fell like rain out of the blue. When my life is through, and the angels ask me to recall the thrill of them all, then I shall tell them I remember you. It sounds simple, right? It's genius. And Johnny had this, his wife, who never understood him, said after he was dead, and I mentioned this lyric, um, she said, do you think he knew all that? I said, he certainly did, because we talked about things like that. But she didn't know what it was all about, and I don't think she ever knew what he was all about. Um, oh, that's because there is no rhyme for Emily. And he wrote, I, as my eyes visualize a family, John, correct me if I'm wrong, as my eyes visualize a family, they see dreamily Emily too. And because he makes a pattern out of the sound. Family? Yeah, that would work. No, that would, somebody Jewish told you that. <laughs> um, but um, John could spin, well, one of the lines of his that's wonderful um, is the thing he wrote for Michelle Legrand's tune. Um, the pigeons. Um, oh, the pigeons feeding in the square have flown. 
But I remember when the Vespers chime, you loved me once upon a summertime. He would do patterns in sound, and they were not necessarily rhymes. But John felt very strongly about that, that you should use pure rhyme until you got an idea that's so good that you're willing to break it for that. And he's right. But how many ideas are that good? Um, anyway, uh, the point I was going to make, this guy said to me in Savannah, don't you think John was more, Alan Bergman and Marilyn cheered when I told them this story? Yeah, Marilyn said. Um, he said to me, don't you think John was more than a lyricist, he was a poet? I said, no, he was more than a poet, he was a lyricist. <laughs> so Marilyn went, yeah. It's the most difficult of all literary crafts. All right. Again, I thank you. More than you know. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.